everyone. Welcome back to Adherent Apologetics, wherever you may be and however you may be joining us. Thank you for making us a part of your day. Uh, the show is brought to you, as always, by your support at patreon.com slash Apologetics. Today, we got Hayden Clark here, if Hayden exists, if anyone even knows who this guy is. What's up, Hayden? Hey, what's going on, Zach? Thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, man, I'm having good. But I mean, I think based on the conversation we are having before we went live, I, I'm starting to lack a belief that you exist. I don't even know if you're real, so I don't even know if have this conversation i don't know if i could convince you i mean all you have to do is say that you're not convinced so yeah who knows if i exist or not it could be all just a hallucination or a figment of your imagination i mean rocks lack a belief that you exist so do you really even exist that's a good point that's a great point speaking of exist we're going to be talking about something that actually exists today that being god um we're gonna be talking about classical theism a uh, little passion project, I guess you could say, of Hayden's recently. And yep. we're just going to be talking about kind of like the ins and outs of what it is, some basic stuff. I don't really have anything too deep that we're going to dive into, but just kind of an introduction to classical theism is kind of the idea. So before we dive into that, Hayden, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Sure. So, um, you know, like you said, my name's Hayden. Uh, I live in North Texas with my wife, uh, who's pregnant with our first child. Uh, it's a girl. And uh, she'll be here any day now, actually, next next week is uh, when we're expecting her. Um, I could go on about that. But uh, I work in EMS. I'm a volunteer firefighter uh, with uh, aspirations of being a full-time one. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in business, a master's degree in theological studies. Uh, I plan to return and finish my master's in philosophy, so a little bit about my education there. But uh, And, of course, I run the YouTube channel, Help Me Believe, where I interview uh, philosophers, theologians, uh, New Testament scholars, historians, that sort of stuff. And I've had on a number of atheists and agnostics as well. And so the channel is mostly just dialogues between myself and really smart people on apologetic related topics. It doesn't necessarily have to be apologetics, but just, you know, it could be New Testament studies, philosophy, theology, anything remotely related and that I'm interested in. I usually go and find, you know, an author of a really well-known book or somebody who speaks on these topics a lot and try to interview them a lot like you do yourself. And uh, lately I've been studying uh, Jesus mythicism and classical theism, and I'll post videos uh, myself on my channel sometimes as well. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, good stuff, bro. I mean, I don't know if you're qualified to even talk about classical theism because apparently your mustache is an atheist. So <laughs> that might kind of rule stuff out here. Um, but we'll just pretend like you are. Um, Obviously, you're a you, you've been diving into classical theism, but I think before that, just if you could dive into theism just for a little bit. So, if if you were to make a just a brief case for theism, could you just talk about like what does it mean to be a theist and why someone should be a theist? Mm -hmm. So, theism is is just the belief that uh, God exists, or it's the position that there is a God. Um, you're making an actual statement about reality, an ontological existential statement. There is a being uh, called God which exists. So that's theism broadly defined. Um, now, I think that you should be a theist because theism is true, and uh, meaning that the arguments for the existence of God are sound, uh, meaning that the, the logic there is sound in the argumentation and that they're based on true premises or at least uh, premises that are more plausibly true than false, if you prefer that kind of uh, language. Um, examples of these would be arguments like uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, which is uh, basically based on the idea that the universe began to exist. William Lane Craig, of course, is somebody, or he coined the phrase, so he's definitely somebody who uh, defends this position and I think defends it well. Uh, the contingency argument 
uh, which is just the fact that why does the universe exist at all? Why does the universe exist as opposed to not existing? Uh, not necessarily uh, why did it begin to exist, but just why does it exist at all? Josh, Josh Rashmussen is somebody who defends, I, I think, the contingency argument quite well. Uh, I think the Aristotelian argument, as uh, proposed by uh, Catholic philosopher Edward Fazer, uh, which is basically based on it's an argument from change. Change exists is going to be the first premise and then works out what change is. It's the reduction of potency to act and why this must terminate in a being, which is just is pure act. And then from there, you can get to the divine attributes. And so, I, I mean, I'm a theist um, in part because I think that those arguments are sound and, and based on true premises. And so I think they succeed in showing that there is a being with the divine attributes. Um, so that, that would be one reason why I'm a theist. Secondly, I would say that God, uh, and I'm in no particular order, but I would say that God does reveal himself to individuals. And this kind of experiential evidence, I think, is even stronger than the philosophical evidence, which I think is quite strong. Um, and so uh, I don't, for example, like I don't need a philosophical argument. Uh, we've been joking about does Hayden exist, but like I don't need a philosophical argument as to why I believe that Zach exists. You know, I don't have premises that deductively lead to a conclusion that says Zach exists. Perhaps I, perhaps I could. I'm just saying I, I don't need one to justify that belief. Um, in the same way, for someone who has experienced God, it's not going to be the same kind of experience that I've had with you. Like, I know you exist. I can see you. I'm not hallucinating, and uh, we've done this before. So, uh, you know, the probability that you're playing a trick on me isn't very well or isn't very good, you know. That sort of thing. Now, you know, you're not going to see God necessarily like God's not a physical being, but uh, you can still I think that you can still experience God. And uh, so no philosophical argument is actually necessary to justify belief in God. But I do think that the philosophical arguments like the ones I mentioned do succeed. So uh, those are broadly the two reasons I would say that uh, someone should be a theist. You know, not everybody has these uh, experiences, though. Um, so I do think that uh, apologetics and philosophy are. I don't know if I want to say necessary, but I, I think they're certainly helpful. Hmm. So classical theism, obviously a branch of theism, and obviously there's, there's a lot of people who aren't classical theists. I was looking into this briefly. I know I've never really dived into the literature regarding the classical theism, but you know, you have people like William Lane Craig, Alvin Plantinga, uh, Ed Fezzer, Edward Fezzer. They're not classical theists. Um, what actually is, I don't think Fezzer is. Do you know Fezzer is? Yeah, Fazer's, yeah, he's a classical theist. Okay, so William Lane Craig and Plantinga aren't, though. So we'll go with that. Um, so could you talk a little bit like about the basics of what does it mean to be a classical theist? Mm -hmm, sure. Uh, some, some, by the way, just some of the people might want to hold on to the, the term classical theism, so I just want to be fair to them, I suppose. But I would say that classical theism is... It's classical because it's the historical and orthodox understanding. And by that, I just mean... I. Just a, a survey of church history is going to reveal that the majority of, certainly the majority of well-known theologians and Christian philosophers of religion uh, would hold to this view of God uh, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. That That's my belief, and it seems to be the belief amongst the, the literature that you're going to find on this, and that's why it's called classical. Uh, but classical theism, I would say, is the historical orthodox understanding of God's nature. So that is what is God or who is God? What is he like or what is God like? So how do we understand his attributes would be one question that we're asking when we're talking about classical theism. Uh, classical theism would affirm that God is divinely simple. 
he's immutable, he's impassable, and he's timeless, meaning outside of time. So like other theists, uh, classical theists would affirm that God's omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipresent, uh, but those really aren't the disputed attributes uh, as much as the, the ones I previously mentioned are. So n nowadays, whenever you look into the literature on this, at least it's been my experience, that when someone says, so are you classical theist or are you uh, what you might call a, a, a neo-theist? Um, R.T. Mullins wants to use the phrase neo-classical theist. I think that his position is so different from classical theism that it doesn't really warrant holding on to the, the word classical. But, you know, are we just debating semantics at that point? It's, you know. Um, but anyway, it's, it's those four attributes it's going to come down to. Do you affirm divine simplicity? Do you affirm immutability? Do you affirm impassibility? Do you affirm divine timelessness? Uh, that's usually what people are talking about. And classical theists are going to affirm all of those. Maybe not divine timelessness, but uh, yeah, basically you get the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you dive into a little bit? You talk about these four attributes that make... Uh classical theism distinct uh can you talk a little bit just like the basics about these four ideas divine simplicity divine mm -hmm. simplicity immutability timelessness and totally blanked on the third one yeah that's okay uh divine simplicity just means that god has no parts whether they be metaphysical parts or physical parts um there's a number of different okay well let me just give some definitions first and then we can talk about other things so that's what divine simplicity means uh, immutability just means that God does not change in his being uh, whatsoever. Uh, omni, uh, skipped around to there, sorry. Uh, impassibility just means that God uh, is not affected by anything outside of himself. He's not affected by creatures. What we do doesn't create a change in him. So impassibility and immutability to me are quite related. Um, I'm trying to think if you could affirm one without the other, but I don't know if you could. Uh, timelessness is going to be that God exists outside of time, so he does not experience the succession of moments like you and I are right now. There's one second, two seconds, three seconds, you know, time's passing. When we think, we form thought after thought, things like that. Uh, divine timelessness would deny that any of that is true of God. He doesn't experience the succession of time like we do. Uh, he's altogether outside of time. And... Um, so you get somebody like uh, William Lane Craig who will say that, uh, you know, God was initially timeless. And then at the moment of creation, yeah, he, um, he he became within time. Uh, to, to me, I think that's incoherent. But um, so you do actually have kind of a mixture there where, where William Lane Craig does affirm that God was initially timeless. And then suddenly at the uh, moment of creation he's now within time i think that a being which is timeless to start with doesn't have the potential to even do what uh, craig wants to say that it, it god did do at the moment of creation but anyway that's, that's kind of a definition of the the different terms there for sure man um so where do you think the pushback comes from? Obviously, there's a lot of people who wouldn't hold this classical theist view. Why do you think that people would dis differ from you on regarding classical theism, someone like a Craig or an Alvin Plantinga? Uh, probably because they're a lot smarter than me and know more than me. But uh, no, uh, that adds a lot. You get the mustache and the glasses, you look like you're like yeah. on top of the world. Uh, so they, anyway, I do want to affirm that they, they've certainly, specifically the two you mentioned are 
definitely smarter than me. Definitely have studied these things a lot longer than me. Uh, I have read, you know, some of their work at least on this topic and uh, don't agree, but you know, whatever. But uh, you know, a lot of the motivation you'll see is, is good. I think most of the motivation for uh, affirming these things is, or denying these things is good. They, they, they want to say that God is, um, you know, passable. Whenever we, we sin, whenever we, uh, whenever we suffer, you know, God, God feels something, God, God, a change in his being occurs. He, he really feels it. So they, they want to affirm these uh, sort of things. And so, um, and, and, you know, you do get intellectual critiques. I mean, that's not a non-intellectual critique, but uh, you do get intellectual. That's more of like a biblical critique. They, they see the God of the Bible who it, you talk about the, the Trinity, you talk about uh, the incarnation, things like that. It seems that God is changing. It seems that God has parts. It seems that, you know, different things. So, there, I mean, there's a lot of objections. It's It would be hard for me to come up with all of them. But um, I was going to I was going to say one of them, to be fair, is just that the, a lot of uh, philosophers, not, I don't know about a lot, but philosophers of religion will say that these ideas are just clearly false. Uh, they're based on false premises and they're inco or they're incoherent and things like that. So they deny them, uh, you know, for a whole host of reasons. Hmm. So can you build a, build a case a little bit? Like, why do you think someone should be a classical theist over different views of theists? They may reject something like divine simplicity or mutability, things like that. So just build a brief case, uh, the expert of the world, Hayden Clark, about why mm, yes. you are right and everyone else is wrong and that only <laughs> Hayden Clark's truth is true. But actually, yeah. you, know, you can just defend classical theism too. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think that all the attributes that we were discussing follow logically from a being whose nature just is to exist, or more precisely, a being which is pure act. And so the classical arguments for God's existence, um, like the ones you'll find in Thomas Aquinas, uh, like some of the ones I, I mentioned, I think actually the Kalam does, I think actually the contingency argument does, and the Aristotelian argument, the three that I mentioned earlier, I think that they terminate in a conclusion uh, that there is a being which exists, which just is pure act. And by that, I mean a being which has no potency. And a being which is a pure act is it's just it's going to turn out on analysis that that just is what we mean by God. Uh, so since uh, since change is uh, merely to to kind of touch on the Aristotelian argument, since change is merely the reduction of a potency to act. So for example, my arm here is potentially to the right, and now it actually is. I don't know if that's the left on your. Your guys's uh, point of view, I get confused. But anyway, my arm's potentially over there, and now it's actually over there. A change has happened, and that that's be because my arm had the real existing potential to do that. And so that's what I mean by potential and actual. Um, so since change is merely the reduction of uh, a potency to act, uh, then it follows that God, as pure act, he lacks all potency. Uh, he cannot change in his being in any way whatsoever. And so that's what we mean by God is immutable. Um, now I'm assuming that the arguments succeed. I don't have a prepared argument to, to defend those arguments. Um, but you can read all the, the, the folks I mentioned earlier. But assuming that those arguments succeed and we end up with a being which is pure act, then I think from pure act, all these divine attributes follow. And what I just mentioned is how divine immutability would follow from pure act. Uh, likewise, to be affected by something else involves a change uh, or the reduction of a potential namely the potential to be affected. Uh, so again, God cannot be affected at all. He can't be affected by creation because he lacks any potential to do so. 
since he is pure act. And so thus we end up with impassibility. Divine simplicity would follow from this too. Uh, another way to think about divine simplicity is this. Um, if God was composed of parts, then it would follow that God is dependent on those parts for his being, meaning if what it means to be God is to be composed of these parts, then in order for God to exist, these parts must be there together. And so what theist wants to affirm that God is dependent on something other than himself for his being? His parts, if God had parts, these parts would not be him. It's the totality of the parts that would be him. Uh, and so he's composed of these parts. And so it would follow that uh, God is dependent on something other than himself or his being, namely those parts and the combination of those parts, uh, which is actually to say that God is a contingent being, I would maintain, uh, and contingent beings stand in want of a cause. So we can always ask, what caused these parts to come together and make God who he is? So you could answer and say, well, they've just always been that way for eternity because it's God. But I think you'd be special pleading at that point. And so only a, a purely simple being uh, who has no potential whatsoever can explain its own existence. In other words, anything else is going to have stand in want of a cause. What causes it to be? Uh, so this is why some have actually argued that to deny divine simplicity is really to affirm atheism. Uh, but I won't go that far. So, but uh, for now, anyway. And uh, God is timeless. Um, I would say not experiencing the succession of time just because the succession of time involves the actualization of potentials as well. Uh, God has no potential. So God is timeless outside of time. So those are just kind of a brief overview of the common ways to get to those divine attributes. There's other ways. There's rebuttals to those things, of course. Um, but yeah. Well, I mean, if Hayden Clark says it's true, then it's yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, if I say it, you can take it as gospel, right? Hayden, Hayden's basic, the, part of the simplest form of God is Hayden also being part of the Godhead. So oh, well, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully people know I'm joking. Yeah. You never know. Uh, I'll probably get 10 years from now quoted, misquoted out of context here. And be like, <laughs> and apologize for the heretic. Um, exactly. But, so I saw some questions pop in the live chat. Thank you everyone for your questions. We'll get to the questions at the end. Um, so we'll have a grill Hayden Clark se segment where you can go that after him. Well. If you want. Um, and before we get to there, I think there's some common objections that we see that I want to bring up before, before we get into it. And I think one of the biggest ones, um, thank you, uh, writer John Buck for the super chat. We'll get to that question at the end. Um, is the Trinity. Obviously, I think that for a lot of people, I think I saw, saw Susan Lambo in the chat bringing up, like, how do you reconcile this idea of divine, divine simplicity with the doctrine of the Trinity? Um, so what are your, kind of your general thoughts on that question? So it's a good, it's a great question. Uh, first of all, it should be noted that whatever uh, you are, whether a classical theist or a neo-theist, neoclassical theist, uh, theistic personalist, whatever you want to call yourself, like, like Craig Plantinga, Swinburne, the Trinity it's going to give you some some problems. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be an issue. So it's not something that's unique to classical theism. And classical theism being one of the oldest traditions has obviously also has a very long-standing tradition of answering this question. Uh, it's not really, I, I say that, uh, it's not really a question that I myself have looked into, but there is a long-standing tradition on it. Obviously, like Christian's been theorizing about this for 2,000 years. Uh, but so when you say that God is one in substance and three in persons, uh, we do not mean that God is three persons like Hayden, Zach, 
and Donald Trump are three different persons. Uh, that would be called polytheism or, uh, more, or, or more specifically tritheism. So there's three gods, right? So in the, in the analogy, there was this thing called human beings and underneath it, there was me, Zach and whoever, Donald Trump. Um, if you try to go that route with the Trinity, then you're going to end up with polytheism. There's this, the, thing called god or divinity in which there are three instantiations the father the son holy spirit uh, i think you've now ended up in polytheism specifically tritheism uh, which is actually impossible because god has no potency uh, in order for there to be more than one of a kind like there is more than one human being so in order for there to be more than one of a kind uh, there must be some potential that one of the kinds actualizes that the others don't or, or otherwise there'd be no distinction between them uh, in order for them to be distinct things, there would have to be some potential that uh, the one actualizes that the others don't. Uh, in our case, it's going to be our the matter that we're composed of. I'm a human being in, in this matter. You're a human being in that matter. That's a pretty simple way of putting it. But uh, but God has no potency. So there could not possibly be more than one God. It's impossible. Polytheism is impossible. So we definitely don't want to go down that road. Everybody already knows we don't want to go down that road. I'm just kind of pointing it out. And I think the Orthodox kind of the historical orthodoxy on the Trinity is that there are distinct, that, that the, the persons of the Godhead are distinct in their relations of being. But to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure. I'm pretty sure that's the historical orthodox affirmation. It certainly isn't something like actual persons. Like it, it can't mean person in the way that we, we mean it in the everyday sense. If it did, that would be polytheism. It'd be tritheism. I'm a person, you're a person. There's three persons in the Godhead. No, that's a horrible analogy. You're going to end up with polytheism, like I said. Um, but I do think that the, if I'm correct, I'm usually not, that the historic Orthodox uh, belief is that they're distinct in their relations of being and that somehow this is reconcilable with monotheism. Um, I haven't studied the topic this much. Um, I would just say to be careful that whatever your answer is doesn't reduce to tritheism. I think that would be the biggest thing that we want to avoid because that's the often the uh, what gets thrown against us by uh, people of other religions, especially the other two monotheistic religions, Judaism and, and Islam, that we're, we're actually polytheists. If we were consistent, we'd be polytheists. Uh, honestly, I like this. There's one God that relates to uh, – there's one God that relates in three different ways, uh, but I'm sure someone's going to claim that that's a heresy. Everyone always wants to say heresy as soon as you start talking about the Trinity. Uh, not that I actually care. People already call me a heretic for a number of other reasons. Um, and crying heresy, I don't think, is a very good argument. But um, but I want to be careful how I word this. I don't really care how the Trinity works. <laughs> works out that much. I mean, uh, I do care in the sense that I, I'm not going to go with something that leads to uh, polytheism or tritheism, but that's kind of the main thing that I'm just trying to avoid with my doctrine of the Trinity. I think surely the other ones are not on par with each other, but you know, do we really want to call everything else? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so basically just to say that um, I would just do everything I could to avoid tritheism. And from there, I would just say, uh, I don't know, without divine simplicity, you might actually end up, might not be able to avoid tritheism. So actually, I don't think divine simplicity is actually a problem for um, the trinity at all i think it's actually quite a bit of helps because no matter what we say about each person um because of divine simplicity it's uh, we're really just talking about um in some sense we're talking about the same thing because god is divinely simple he's not actually distinct uh things uh, god is one because he's divinely simple so we, divine simplicity really protects against something like tritheism or polytheism and 
necessitates a monotheism, no matter what you want to say about the persons, you're protected by divine simplicity from going outside of monotheism. Well, Jonathan Depew just called you a modalist, so you already got the heresy going. Right. See, that's that's the one I'm talking about. Everybody wants to say if God, um, um, if you if you think that God is if there's one God who relates to people in, in in three different ways, then that's a that's the modalist position. Uh, All right. Well, I have one more question here. No, there's a bunch of questions in the live chat. Um, one of the more common things we also see is the idea that if it look it looks like God's interacting in the world when you look at the Bible, like there's the story um, where it's like if I'm trying to remember. It should be Abraham. Ah, I'm. I should know my Bible. I have an apologetics YouTube channel. I've got it. You sent but, me the question you know, ahead of time. There's like, there's like the one person and the five people, and and it's like God will destroy the city, and you, you, oh, you know okay. where I'm going. And so, how do you deal with that from a, the idea of a classical theistic perspective? Yeah. So, uh, so this will actually address both questions. But the original question that you had sent me was God is changeable, but God changes his mind. And so mm -hmm. I kind of had something prepared on that. It'll also, yeah, it'll also called, address what you just said. Better. So I was just trying to analogize it. Yeah. But. So I, God doesn't really change his mind. Um, very few people are going to affirm that. Uh, for one thing, God isn't a human being who has thought after thought, reading, uh, reasoning to conclusions, like in a temporal succession, we were talking about arguments earlier that go well this premise is true this premise is true it logically follows yada 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 uh, that's that's not how god's thoughts are um, he's not a human being like us with a brain like us it doesn't work that way um, god exists outside of time um, secondly i suppose that you know the idea of god changes his mind uh, it's an objection that as often comes from passages like in the old testament um, the abraham uh, example or the the i think it's jonah or, or so, somewhere where it literally does say that God repented, God relented, he changed, he literally changed his mind. Uh, I think when it comes to the city of Nineveh, God changes his mind. If I've got that correct, I, I wasn't very good in Awanas as a kid, so I don't know if I've got that correct or not, but uh, it says that he changes his mind. Uh, but like I said, um, I think that the, you know, well, I don't think, but the scriptures also say that God has a strong right arm. But I highly doubt that any monotheist thinks or wants to affirm that God is a physical being with big muscles. That you know, the Bible says a lot of things like this. Um, we call these passages anthropomorphisms, or these are passages that are humanizing God in order to make their point. It's a figure of speech, and because we're talking or communicating with other human beings, we're trying to communicate truths about God to other human beings. It's, it's sometimes a helpful tactic to make these sort of comparisons or analogies, but they are analogies. They're analogous. They're not univocal. When you say God has a right arm, we don't mean it. A lot of people like to use the word literal. I think univocal is a more accurate, but it is kind of the same thing. We don't mean God literally has big muscles when we say that he has a strong right arm. We tend to be talking about his omnipotence or his all powerfulness. Um, and so I think the same thing goes for whenever you see God changes his mind or, you know, God's changing in some way or something like that. I don't think that the Bible, uh, biblical authors meant that in a univocal sense or that they meant that in a literal way. Um, they seem to affirm that God was before the physical universe was. And so, I mean, you know, we either have a stark contradiction or they clearly were just using figure of speeches because it's helpful sometimes to use those when you're communicating with other human beings. Um, so I think that same thing is going on whenever it comes to God changing. God didn't change his mind. What happened was the Ninevites changed their minds. And um, it was kind of a, a useful little thing to say that God relented when in reality, the Ninevite, God didn't change. Like he didn't, um, 
he wasn't wrathful towards the Ninevites and then just like, oh, I'm going to change my mind now and I'm going to be merciful. What happened was that the Ninevites repented and and um, chose to obey God or, or believe God. And therefore, they are the ones that moved from God's wrath to his mercy, his grace. God God didn't. There was no real change in God. Um and, and if it could be shown that the Old Testament authors really did believe that God was physical, and change, I just want to say this just to rile some people up. Uh, if the Old Testament authors really did affirm, like if it could be shown exegetically and from the historical grammatical point of view or whatever, that the Old Testament authors really did believe that God was physical or that God, there was a change in God. And so immutability is false. Uh, I would just say, cool, they're, they're all wrong. I mean, for all these philosophical reasons, I can't deny. So, I mean, you know, there's that. People can have fun with that. Yeah, good stuff, bro. Uh, we'll, we'll go to some Q&A here. Um, thank you, everyone, who supports the Hearing Apologetics. If you enjoy the show, you can support us at patreon.com slash Hearing Apologetics for as little as a dollar a month. You can also support through Super Chat, or you can get a membership and get a cute little emoji next to your name, all that stuff. Um, let's get let's get to the grill Hayden Clark segment of the show. Um, oh, it's gonna, I'm going to fail. We have a bunch of questions. First one is a Super Chat from writer John Bunk. Thank you, John. He says, a little bit different, but an interesting question. Hayden, why aren't you Catholic? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I agree with, uh, for example, Thomas Aquinas on a lot of things. I don't know if I agree with him on everything. Um, I agree with Brian Davies, who's a, a Catholic, on the problem of evil. Um, I listen to Trent Horn a lot. I listen to different Catholic philosophers. So, uh, so first, I just want to say that yeah, there is a lot to commend. I think uh, to Catholicism. I don't agree, um, and there's these aren't things that I've just know a whole lot about. Um, but I, I think I don't agree with them, say, on the on the Lord's Supper, on different theological things, on the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, on, uh, I don't know, d different theolo biblical theological things that, uh, you know, different beliefs that you arrive at via your interpretation of Scripture. And so if I don't agree with you on your interpretation of the Scripture, I'm no longer going to hold the same theology as you because that's where you got that theology from, was from some text. And I think you've read that text incorrectly, and therefore I'm going to disagree with you. It's usually on stuff like that. Uh, having trouble bringing up any specific examples. And again, even the specific examples that I could bring up, they're not things that I have read just a whole lot about. Um, the other one would be something like uh, purgatory. I don't think there's any purgatory or something like that. But, you know, just different things like that. That doesn't mean I couldn't go to a Catholic mass. I mean, I go to a church where I disagree with the pastor on things. Um, but uh, there's also silly reasons. Like, I, you know, I don't get the whole – it's very formal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should reject Catholicism because it's formal. That's right. That. And just you guys know, I'm totally joking. In case someone out there's like thinks I'm yeah. serious, no, uh, yeah, I, I have a, I have, I, I'll reiterate, I have the utmost respect for for Catholic. I've learned a lot from them, and they've changed me a lot in some ways. In the sense that I grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist church and was taught that Roman Catholicism is legalism. Um, there's no grace. There's no faith. It's just, or it's a mixture of faith and works and things like that. Um, and I think that that all turned out to be bunk once I actually started uh, listening to some of them. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean, my high school basketball coach was a Catholic, the first like devout Catholic I ever ex interacted with in my life, and he was one of the most coolest dudes I ever met, and it changed a lot of what I thought about Catholicism. Uh, thank you, BDS, for becoming a member. Welcome to I don't know, I don't have a name for members, so if you have any ideas, hey, <laughs> heretics. Maybe we'll go with the heretics. Yeah, the heretic um, membership. 
Susie Lambo says, I keep hearing about the problem, the problem of the one and the many. I don't really understand it. I have not yet looked specifically into it. So do you have any thoughts on what's going on here, Hayden? Um, I can try. So sorry if I fail miserably. Uh, the problem of the one and the many is going to be a little bit about what I was mentioning earlier whenever we're talking about the Trinity. So the problem of the one and the many is you have an essence or a nature. We'll, we'll use humanity, human humanness, human humanity. Humanity is an essence or a nature. Um, it could be defined as a rational animal. Human beings are animals. What makes us distinct from other animals is our capacity for rationality or, or reasoning or something like that. Um, if that's the wrong definition, it doesn't matter. What matters is there really is something distinct about humans than there is from dogs. Like there is a real distinction uh, that exists. And so there's different essences and one of them would be something like humanity. Underneath that, so that's that's the oneness. The humanity is the oneness. Underneath that, there's going to be uh, many instantiations of that one essence. I'm a human. Zach's a human. If he's not an alien, uh, the commenter is, presum is presumably a human. So the question is, how does this thing, um, this one thing, humanity, apply to the many? And philosophers have been debating that since, you know, I don't know. The pre-Socratics, like that—that's the question. And um, but anyway, that—that's kind of a very rough outline of what the problem of the one and the many is. Uh, next question comes from this dude named Nick Quint. No one knows who he is. Doesn't sound like a really smart guy at all. Um, he says, "How do we incorporate God's activity and display of emotions in the First Testament with simplicity and immutability?" So, kind of, I guess, what we were talking about beforehand. So, I don't know if you have any other. So God, God's action, um, it used to give me a lot of struggle, um, starting with the, actually with the incarnation, I think he mentioned the first Testament, but the starting with the incarnation, uh, I was just kind of like, I don't know how this would square with classical theism, but, um, the way I like, I like to think, or the way that I think is helpful in thinking about a God who is timeless, um, immutable, things like that. How does such a being act? One of the objections against leveled against classical theism has to do with God's action in, in time. It would seem that that would involve a change. That seems to be the tension. If God doesn't change, then how does he act in time? Is God just the static thing that exists over there um, and, and doesn't do anything? Or are you stuck with some kind of static God? And I don't think so. Um, again, a couple of things. The first one would be that the classical arguments for the existence of God, like the ones we we mentioned, but I did not argue for or defend, but the ones that I mentioned, terminate in in God or a being that is pure act. And so God is fully actual, having no potential. Um, and all that's needed to bring about a change is that the cause of the change be in act. And so God, but God just is pure. So, for example, I have to exist or I have to be in act to pick this pin up. My hand has to be in act in order to cause the potential of the pin to raise up off the, the, the table. I have to be in act in order to do that. If I was merely in potential, then I couldn't, you know, it couldn't do anything because it has to be an act. Uh, but God's pure act. And so he, uh, he has the, you might say, the necessary condition in order to uh, bring about a change in something else. And so I, I don't think there's any problem uh, with that. And then I would say, uh, one thing that people struggle with um, is understanding acts within time and things like that. Like uh, if God doesn't change, then how is he causing, you know, the, the, um, 
this the C to split at, at time T one, and then later he's um, he's doing something at time T two. He's doing things at multiple different times. It would seem that that would involve a change. Um, but I would say that God's act is one act. It's from eternity, and it has multiple effects within time. And I don't see anything contradictory about that. Um, the only attempts that I've seen to try to show a contradiction with that would be to use analogies of people or things that exist physically and within time. And I don't think that those are good analogies because God exists outside of time. He's not physical, uh, these sort of things. And so I would just say, yeah, God is, he just is because of divine simplicity, one act. And that act exists outside of time. It's one act from eternity that has multiple effects in time. Um, that, that's my answer, at least. All right. That was an easy question. So we'll give you a hard one now um, from Nate to D2. Shoot. It says, does Hayden Clark have a mustache or does that mustache have a Hayden Clark? When you separate the two, have you shaved the mustache or have you shaved the Hayden Clark? I'm going to say that I have a mustache and uh, that my mustache is existent is parasitic on my existence so there you go this is a, a deep answer for your question i think there was like this mustache and then like this body kind of grew from the mustache that's kind of it's possible the way i see it going uh jonathan depew says uh well hayden unpack how we discern the four attributes that is what criteria do we use to figure out that these attributes are true about god they so the, you have the, the entire argument, say from the Aristotelian argument that begins with change exists. Um, and there can't be just to make it ex extremely simple. There can be an infinite one. Change is the actualization of a potential, and so you eventually arrive at there must be a being which is pure act. And from there, it it just logically follows that uh, the criteria that you would use for that is just the same principles of being, same principles of logic that everyone uses for argumentation. Uh, another question from Jonathan DePew. Uh, he says, if we want to call classical theism the, the orthodox position, why do we suppose that none of its key claims about God are in the creeds that we confess? Uh, I don't know that it isn't in, in, in the creeds, but um, you'd have to consult the creeds. But um, I don't know about the creeds. But I don't, I don't know that it's true that they're not in the, in the creeds that we confess. Um, Spartan Theology, uh, pretty cool dude, says, Ethan says, if God is impassable, is there any way for God to have real relationships? If God is impassable, is there any way for God to have real relationships? Uh, there's not, is, I mean, I don't think that God has uh, a relationship. Say, so, for example, God's love. Um, I don't think that whatever, whatever the word love means when applied to God, I don't think it means the same thing. It's certainly not univocally as uh, the same thing whenever I apply it, say, when I say I love my wife. I don't think God uh, – there's this bug flying around. Sorry. keeps happening. Um, sure. I don't think, I don't, so when I say God is love and when I say Hayden loves his wife, I don't think the word love functions univocally in both senses. It Perhaps um, I, I would say it functions something uh, like analogically in both senses. Um, I think that God is love because he wills that which is good uh, for his creation. I love my wife means a little bit more than that. There's emotions involved. There's, uh, we don't have to get into it, but there's other things involved. Uh, if you smell what I'm stepping in, I don't feel, I don't think God feels that way about me. Um, so, I mean, I don't think they're univocal. And so I don't think that just because God's impassable and um, perhaps this question is actually if, um, if 
we don't affect a change in the way that God feels, um, can he have a real relationship? I, I think absolutely, because he, you know, there's, there's some philosophers who want to say that God, uh, he, he's always angry with sin. Um, he's always um, graceful or loving towards uh, a repentant heart or something like that. He's just always this way. And so it's actually us who move uh, between these categories based on what we do and what we believe in or something like that. Um, I don't know about that, but that's one thing that philosophers say. Um, another thing is just to say that uh, just because God doesn't have emotions like the way that we have emotions doesn't mean that he doesn't have a real relationship with us. Uh, he, these arguments for the existence of God are going to terminate with a being which literally sustains us in existence. Uh, without him, we wouldn't even exist. So I don't know what could possibly be more uh, relational than all at every moment of your existence, God is causing you to be. And, and you also get things like omnipresent. I mean, omnipresent is still something that follows on classical theism. And so, I mean, a God who literally sustains you in existence and is present at every moment, he's present in every moment because at every moment he's sustaining your existence. Um, yeah, I think that's a, like the most relatable being. It's not a relationship like the way that me and my wife have a relationship or the way that me and um, a friend have a relationship or the way that I have a relationship with my dog or, or something like that. Uh, but, I mean, I don't think that we should expect that. And I don't think that it hurts God or his or or what we mean by God to say that the, the relationships aren't univocal they're they're not the same I think actually it magnifies God to to make those distinctions another super chat from writer John Buck thank you John uh, he says what are your thoughts on American pragmatism where all our beliefs ought to be whatever will cause us to act in accordance with what is good for us American pragmatism our beliefs ought to be whatever causes us to do what to act in accordance with what is good with us it seems almost like if something's it has an end in mind like we ought to do this and then it wants to attach whatever belief actually motivates that action yeah i think that's kind of what's going on here not completely sure what's wrong with that is for one thing you're putting the cart before the horse and then you know you, you've already had the end in mind for some reason and then saying, well, we can, let's just attach whatever reason gets us. Well, you, I think you already do have a reason in mind. Otherwise you wouldn't get the cart. You're kind of putting the cart before the horse. And, and secondly, I would just think that, uh, shoot, you could come up with a false belief that leads to some good out. Um, and there could be an argument to say that, yeah, I'd have to think about that. That's not any question I've ever been asked before. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it puts a cart before the horse, and you could easily just have a false belief. But... All right. Um, another question here from Nick Quint. Uh, he says, "Really, don't know who this Nick Quint guy is. Seems like a not a smart guy." Um, <laughs> should we debate the economic versus? He's using big words to like try to make himself sound smart. Yeah. Just kidding. Love Nick. Um, he says, should we debate the economic versus imminent trinity, trinity as usual? Uh, that's where the debate lies and me thinks. And there's a similar question from BDS, which says, if the persons aren't really distinct, why call it a trinity? So a couple similar questions regarding the trinity. So what are your kind of thoughts, Aiden? Uh, like I already said, like uh, the trinity isn't something that just really 
um, you know, I know it concerns a lot of people. It's kind of like, um, you know, evolution and, and Genesis really bother some people. That problem has never been one of mine. And so I don't want to devote a lot of time to studying it, not because it's not important or because it isn't worth your time to study. It just doesn't pop up on my radar whatsoever. The Trinity's not quite like that, but it is enough like that, that uh, I feel compelled to say, look, I'm not the Trinity expert. Um, so if you have objections to classical theism about the Trinity, uh, I don't have anything to say to you really because it, I'm fine with um, whatever the Orthodox belief is. I'll just affirm it by faith or whatever because I don't have the time. I mean, I have the time, but I'm not motivated enough to study it. Maybe somebody can change my mind on that. Uh, his question was about the economic versus uh, another view. Um, shoot, I don't know. I mean, I'm familiar with the terms and I know understand you know, people debate these things. Um, I probably just be like, oh, you tell me what, if, if Nick and I were having a conversation, I'd be like, well, you have, by your big words, obviously know more about the subject than I do. Why don't you tell me what you think? And then based on your definitions of these things, I could tell you what I think. But um, what was it? the other question was? Um, uh, uh, let's get back up to it. I said, um, if the persons aren't really distinct, then why call it a trinity? No, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. If it, so, um, if if it's not really distinct in the sense that you, me, uh, Donald Trump are distinct, uh, why call it a trinity? Because it's not. But I mean, of course, the word trinity has never meant that they're distinct things in that way. Because it is a monotheist belief. At the end of the day, you have to say you have to say essentially or substantially they're the same thing. You have to say that. That's why I don't understand. Um, and, you know, perhaps John or somebody can explain it to me. But if at the end of the day, we must say that we must say this substantially, essentially, we're talking about one thing. Um, I don't get why the what did he say? Modalism or something like that is such a naughty word. I mean, it is one thing. It just is one thing. And so how you parse out the distinction, whatever, however you parse out the distinction it can't be such that you end up with more than one thing. It is still just one thing. So, I mean, it's a mystery to me. That's why I just say, yep, there's one God. And um, per look, perhaps person is not a good word. Um, and really, I'd, from what I understand, and I don't read or, or speak Greek, the Greek, the original Greek word used to describe the Trinity is not quite... Um, the same as the word person that we use today because we use person like the way I've been using it. You're a person. I'm a person. Donald, I keep using Donald Trump. Donald Trump's a person. Um, and it just doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. Otherwise, we're talking about polytheism. So I'm happy to con uh, affirm monotheism and then say, and then I'm happy to just say, look, the scriptures speak of God as Holy Spirit. The scriptures speak of God as Father. The scriptures speak of God as uh, the Son. And uh, there seems to be some kind of distinction there, but it's not the kind of distinction um, such that, um, you know, we end up with something that isn't monotheism. So I have to say, I, I'll just say this, and people can call me a heretic, but I get why they're, they're asking the questions because they can probably already sense it. I don't know how to phrase this for it. Uh, or or something like, um, I can't remember the term that John used, modalism or something like that. It, it just doesn't bother me. 
right? The fact that um, I can't answer these questions doesn't bother me because at the end of the day, if I had to say, look, it really isn't any distinction. It's just one God. I'm not saying that I affirm this. And <laughs> I'm saying if I was forced to say this because of good reasons or something like that, look, it's just one God and it's different relations. Uh, it's just being understood differently from our point of view. Um, it wouldn't bother me the slightest. I'm not saying I affirm that. I'm basically agnostic on it. And whatever everyone tells me is the orthodox belief and I need to go this route. That way I'm not a heretic. I'll say, okay, okay, that's great. I'll go that route because I just, yeah, it's not a big thing for me. Uh, we'll close here from a <laughs> grilling question from Salem on that note. You're all good, bro. Um, he says, how can I know as much stuff as Salem? Who has do what? Salem. Salem says, how can I know as much stuff as Hayden? Oh, okay. How, I don't know that much. Salem, just based on when I see him on, on Twitter, seems to be reading even more than I. Uh, John John was saying that he's aiming for 100 books this year. Um, but the only way to know anything is to read. I mean, that's, I mean we have different mediums now, like, uh, like YouTube. You know, perhaps somebody learned something today. I doubt it. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's different, different ways to, to learn. But uh, reading, I think, is, is, is still the best. Um, I'm not answering this question as if he, he means how can he literally learn as much as me. I know it's a joke. But just talking about learning in general, I think you just have to learn to be a good reader. And, uh, and read widely. Read widely. Read people um, that you think are heretics. <laughs> I mean, Hayden's a heretic, right? So, you yeah. Know. Yeah, listen to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, Hayden. I really enjoyed this conversation, man. Yeah. Any any closing thoughts before we wrap things up here? Uh, just that I I want to be careful, or uh, yeah, careful is fine. Um, I want to be careful, and I want to say that I don't think that people, uh, modern people who disagree with certain aspects of classical theism, like divine simplicity, immutability, impassibility, divine timelessness, I don't think that they're heretics. Um, I don't think that they're maligning God so badly or something like that. I do think that it's important how we think about God. And, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to throw that little rejoinder in there. I don't think that these people are stupid or that they're heretics or anything like that. Um, but I do, I think that classical theism holds. It also seems to me to be the longstanding of the tradition of the church. Um, that doesn't make it true, but it should give us pause to say, probably there weren't all idiots. You know, we should give this a second thought. That's what I did. I gave it a second thought. And after reading classical theists and a lot of Catholics, um, I became convinced. Good stuff, man. Um, hopefully we'll have baby Hayden on the on, on the show one time. We've had baby, little, little baby Nick Jr., Nick Quinn yeah. Jr. before. Maybe yeah, we, baby we, Hayden. We probably will at some point. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, bro. Uh, before we close off, just in case people don't know where to follow you, how can they follow Hayden Clark and help me believe? Yeah, you can go to YouTube and just type in Help Me Believe. After the Strayhand lyrics, you should be able to find my channel there. If it doesn't pop up first by now, I don't know. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Hayden Clark underscore. Some, somebody already had just Hayden Clark. At <laughs> Help Me underscore Believe, I think is uh, the YouTube channel's Twitter, uh, that sort of stuff. But yeah. Yeah, good stuff, bro. I encourage everyone to follow Hayden. And even if you don't like Hayden, the, the mustache definitely is worth the follow. So <laughs> if you're listening via podcast, you're really missing out on a great mustache uh, from Hayden yeah. Clark. Uh, but enjoy the time, man. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Really appreciate everyone who joined. Nate, Roxby, 
John Depew, Nick Quinn, even though I don't know who that is, BDS for becoming a member, everyone who supports, including our patrons. Uh, really appreciate everyone's support as we keep on going and hopefully keep on bringing the gospel through apologetics. Hayden, it's been real, man. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. God bless.